Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Business of Cyber. Our guest today is Dylan Airy, the CEO of Truffle Security. Dylan has leveraged the success from building TruffleHog, which if you're unfamiliar is one of the most popular open source cloud security projects, to ultimately building a commercial product and business around it that is Truffle Security. Now in the episode, we dig into the origin story for building the business, the lessons he's learned transitioning from a security practitioner to a first-time CEO, as well as suggestions for other security leaders considering the jump into entrepreneurship. All in all, it's an amazing episode, and I'd like to give a big thank you and shout out to Travis McPeak for, yet again, uh, another amazing introduction to a, a great founder and CEO. As always, if you have any guest recommendations, I'd love to hear from you on LinkedIn. It's the best place to find me uh, under Joe Vink. Now, without further ado, I'll kick it over to Dylan Airy from Truffle Security. Well, the party is off to a good start. Dylan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for uh, for joining me today. How's it going? Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, it's going well. Uh, right before you hit the record button, we were just talking about uh, relative heat waves, but uh, right now it's pretty good. <laughs> good, but we're moving in the right direction. Um, so as a way to kick us off, we'd love to... Uh, maybe just begin with a little bit more about you. Um, maybe a you know quick overview of your background and how you found your way into the security industry. Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, so a lot of that has has honestly been through um, through open sourcing projects and contributing to open source projects. Um, in uh, in university, I was a part of uh, the open source club uh, at my uh, Rochester Institute of Technology and. Basically, that got me super plugged into different security open source projects um, that I would contribute to, and then eventually author a couple of them. Um, some of those have uh, kind of taken off in popularity. A lot of them didn't go anywhere, but uh, that definitely helped me find various jobs in the industry. Uh, ultimately, ended up uh, most recently uh, as a security engineer over at Netflix, um, and then ultimately ended up quitting my job and forming a company around one of the popular open source projects that I had authored. Uh, I also do a lot of public speaking in the security space. So spoken at um, both DEF CON and Black Hat a couple of times, um, and uh, really excited to be on the show with you today. Cool. Uh, you, you mentioned sort of open source as a maybe consistent theme throughout your uh, your time in security. What is it about open source that's uh, kind of drawn you to it? Yeah, I mean, so the thing about technology is like, I think a lot of it is kind of gatekept. Um, you think about something as simple as like Amazon Web Services that's become so essential for almost every business on the planet. Um, it costs money uh, and there's a barrier to entry and there are certain parts of the world and certain people even in, in this part of the world that just cannot participate in that ecosystem. And that just becomes like a barrier of entry, but um, open source software removes that barrier um, and just creates a, a free ecosystem where you can play around with technologies without having to worry about paywalls. Um, and it, it just is a really easy way to put an idea of yours into the hands of hundreds of people and get them all playing around and contributing and building the technology together. And in that way, sometimes the technology itself can be built um, in ways that you wouldn't have even thought about um, if, if it was kept closed. But because it's open, 
makes it easier for people to contribute to and send their own code snippets and tell you how they're using it, um, which allows you to just kind of expand um, that that software to some demographic that maybe you hadn't have originally thought of when you originally wrote it. So I think there's you know there's a ton of benefits to contributing to open source, and I think the market is honestly recognize that's why so much of our software development lifecycle is open source these days. Um, you wouldn't think of using a database these days that, that wasn't open source. Um, I, I can only name a couple of them of the top 10 most popular databases that are still closed source, um, maybe only like one or two. Uh, and then our, um, you know, our runtime environments, Kubernetes, our uh, Docker, our um, web servers, our NGINXs, our, our programming languages, our, our Pythons and uh, Golangs and such, like all like the entire end-to-end -end develop like software development ecosystem is open source. And so um, I think that's been a growing trend over the last couple of decades. And that's definitely the future. And so for me that's that's never really been a um, you know a controversial topic. It's always just been an obvious choice. Yeah. Cool. Uh, you know, we'll get into Truffle Hog and how that led into to Truffle Security in a bit, but a little bit more conceptually, um, you know, if there's a, a foundational open source technology, when you think about building a business around that, does that make it easier, make it more difficult? How does it change, uh, you know, actually trying to, to monetize it? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I think the question kind of gets flipped on its head. Um, instead of saying, um, you know, I've got this idea and we're going to use open source as the go-to-market. It's, it's more, um, let's try open sourcing something. And if it becomes popular, then that is your go-to-market. And if it doesn't go anywhere, then that's a really strong signal that, you know, no one wants to engage with that technology. Right. And so I think, you know, in that regard, um, your, your litmus test of whether or not a business is viable is, in a lot of ways, whether or not there is traction around that open source, um, to an extent. Um, I, I usually tell the story about like a, a pretty popular project that has a few thousand stars on GitHub that literally just tells you what your Wi-Fi password is. Um, so you know you can have popular open source projects that might not have business viability, but um, I think if you have an idea and you and you think, oh well, just open source is is what's going to build this business for me because of all these other multi-billion dollar businesses we're seeing that are open source. Um, I think open source will be a very quick way to test whether or not there is market viability because you're just easily putting it in the hands of hundreds of people and, and they're determining for you whether or not um, there's there's a use case for the software or not. Yeah. You mentioned uh, you know having experimented with open source a lot and some have been very successful, some have been less successful. What are maybe some learnings you've had in in those uh, experiences? Yeah, I mean, so when I was doing it back then, like I I didn't particularly care whether or not it was successful or not. I was um, more or less just putting things on GitHub, thinking you know if other people can make use of this, great, and if not, mm -hmm. um, that's that's fine too. Um, I, I never did it in the framing of like I want to turn this thing into a business. Um, it was always just like, I want to share code with, with other people and I want to get more yeah. people playing around with this stuff. And so, you know, I wouldn't necessarily consider the projects that didn't blow up failures by any means. Um, but yeah, I mean, like if, if you're trying to make something blow up, um, 
then I guess like you, you have to frame it from a different mindset. You have to frame it from the perspective of, um, you know, what's, what's, how quickly is it to get this thing stood up? How quickly am I delivering value to the person who's running it and how likely are they to share it and all those things. And those were just never originally criteria that I was trying to meet. But for me, it was always just throw it on GitHub and, you know, forget about it more or less. Yeah. Okay. So let's pivot a bit into, uh, into truffle hawk. Uh, I know that's obviously sort of the, the foundation for, for trouble truffle security now, but, um, walk us through maybe how you originally got the idea, uh, whether it was at Netflix or you know, just th through other experiences throughout your career and what led to you, uh, you know, starting that project. Yeah. So, I mean, it definitely predated my time at Netflix by a couple of years um, and actually predated uh, most of my career in security. Um, I think it definitely helped me get security jobs, actually. Uh, but more or less, the reason I originally wrote it, um, I was between jobs and I was doing a little bit of bug bounties. Um, so just making some side money, enjoying my uh, fun employment. And uh, Truffle Hog was just a script that I wrote that could help me do that. <laughs> um, it was just meant to find leaky API keys and uh, passwords and things like that, that um, were posted to GitHub. And it turns out there were a lot. Um, so in the original readme, I actually had a screenshot of a key that I had reported to, you know, a big fang company. Um, and I think uh, I was thinking, oh, there must be other bug bounties and researchers out there who might want to use this as well to do the same thing that I'm doing. So I used it for myself for a little while, and then I put a license, an open source license on it, threw it up on GitHub, um, thinking there might be a couple other practitioners out there that would do the same, but um, wasn't really expecting it to become as popular as it did. Um, everybody started using it, and then everybody started realizing how many keys were on GitHub, um, which is still a problem to this day. Um, but I think it's a problem that's gotten better over time because of the visibility that's been shined uh, in, in part because of Truffle Hog. Now the tool is really popular and ubiquitous within application security. Um, like I think most application security professionals have heard of Truffle Hog, um, maybe have even tried running it. Um, and so I guess, uh, yeah, the, the original use case was just kind of this personal use. I never intended for everybody to just start using it everywhere, but that's that's kind of what happens when you put stuff on GitHub sometimes. Yeah. And how long did it take you to make, to make it? Oh, the original script was just a weekend project, but I mean, it's evolved over time and has had contributions from people all over the world. So, you know, yeah. the thing that it is today is the culmination of dozens of engineers all over the world um, who've, you know, collectively in parallel put in hours and hours of work. Yeah. Okay, cool. Can you track those changes? Like, can you see where it is today and how it's different from the original that you put up? Yeah, that's all tracked in GitHub. Um, you can still revert it back to what it was originally and still see um, every, everyone's contribution. So we actually have badges on the readme that show you who's contributed what to the repository. So you can get a little, uh, I guess, street cred yeah. from doing contributions to Truffle Hog. Cool, okay. Um, this is probably going to sound like a, a naive question, but just to bear with me, um, you, you mentioned this is a you know pretty prevalent problem, and that's evidenced by I think right the open source tool being really successful 
you guys forming a business around it shortly thereafter. But um, why is it that API keys and other like sensitive information kind of inadvertently gets posted to, to GitHub? Yeah, I mean, honestly, we're mostly just focused on API keys. So we could scope the question to just that, right? Like, yeah. you know, there's questions about other things leaking too. But um, yeah, I mean, it's it's caused a number of huge breaches over the years. I mean, one of which um, Uber CISO is being litigated this week over um, was an Amazon key on GitHub that led to 57 million Uber user records. Um, and so like, I think the question of like, well, why is it so common really comes down to like how our SaaS and cloud providers connect to one another. Mm -hmm. um, there are some really sophisticated, advanced authentication schemes that people have come up with um, for two services to be able to talk to one another without using API keys. Um, like Spiffy would be a, one protocol that that's like that, but they tend to have a really high, or at least in their current state, have a high barrier to adoption, barrier to entry. The easiest thing for a provider to do to be able to connect another provider is to just issue a very simple API key. Um, and if you're a like a SaaS vendor, you want adoption. You want this thing to be as usable as possible. So that tends to be the authentication mechanism that SaaS and cloud providers opt to use. And then the question is, okay, well, if we're forced into using these keys, how come we're not managing them better? How come we're not storing them better? I mean, there are companies that specialize in securely storing these keys, right? The success of HashiCorp's vault product would be a good example. Um, but Hashi is a customer of ours. So where's the contradiction there, right? Um, I think it just comes down to uh, ease of adoption. And when you have thousands of engineers or hundreds of engineers or even dozens of engineers, um, and, and they're just trying to build products uh, as fast as possible, the easiest thing to do is to not pull in a very secure secrets manager and load your secret into secrets manager and make sure that's all working both on your laptop and in production. The easiest thing to do is just get a simple proof of concept of talking to your SaaS or cloud provider with the easiest way to use that token, which is just putting it directly into your source code. Um, and then like usually after you start with that proof of concept, you, you, you think, okay, well, then I move it over to a more secure place. But a lot of things can happen between that A and B. Um, those files could get checked in by accident. Um, sometimes if it's a really inexperienced person on the team, they might not know about the more secrets, man, more secure way of doing things. And they may end up intentionally checking the secrets in. Um, mm. But in all cases, like it's, it's a hard problem. Um, it's a balance of usability versus security. Um, it's a balance of law of large numbers. If you have a whole bunch of people all trying to do this thing. And it's in part the providers that are just trying to make their services as easy to use as possible. And oftentimes security gets sidelined um, to, to, to usability. And so it's still an unsolved problem, um, but we're doing our best at least to provide visibility to organizations uh, to when these keys leak out to get you notified as quickly as possible. And in some cases to be able to prevent them from leaking out in the first place. Got it. Okay. So help me understand, or, or maybe paint the picture for, you know, Truffle Hog is the, the open source initial weekend project that you, you put together that, you know, as an open source sort of community driven initiative has improved significantly over the years. And now you run Truffle Security. 
Um, so walk me through that process and, and maybe what that looked like for you and also what Truffle Security does today. Yeah, so I mean, we're an open source company. We're always going to be investing into open source and we're always going to be giving out um, you know, a, a free and open source tool for people to use. Um, to, to power that, um, to, to make an, you know, a free and open source product, to, to be able to pay for engineers that, that work on that, um, we need to also take in revenue, which means there has to be some part of the business that we're selling as well. Um, so you know, there are a lot of different companies that are open source companies, um, but also sell a product. And there are different strategies to doing that. Um, one strategy is called the open core model, which is basically you've got some things that are open source and some things that aren't. You use the things that aren't open source, you sell those, you get the revenue, and then you use that to fund the things that are open source. Um, one model is called the SaaS model. Um, that's basically your whole thing is open source, but you're just managing it on behalf of people. You're just running it for them so they don't have to run it up in their own infrastructure. So you charge for that and then you use that to fund more of the open source investment. Um, we take a little bit of the split between those two approaches. So um, we don't open source everything. Uh, we've got like a managed dashboard and continuous monitoring and a couple of different integrations that we're looking for secrets in that are closed source. Mm -hmm. Um, but our open source scanning engine, all the secrets that we support, um, the way we validate that the secrets are live by testing the keys against their API providers, uh, we call that verification, all that stuff is open source, um, and it's always going to be open source. And the way we can continue to build out that secrets engine under the hood to continue to open source that, um, is through selling the enterprise product. Um, so that's, that's kind of how we took something that was purely open source that didn't have any full-time employees working on it and turned it into a business that now has a lot of full-time people working on open source stuff professionally. What was that transition like for you? You know, going from a, a security practitioner, security engineer, a lot of well-known companies to now CEO uh, of a business that employs a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, there were a ton of lessons learned along the way. Um, ton of things I learned about growing a diverse team, resolving conflicts, um, about just management in general. Um, I think there's always room for growth and development there. And I'm really fortunate to have an opportunity to be able to learn so much about all these different things. I think we had talked about this as well. I think, you know, you have more of a sales background. I'm, I don't have a sales background. And so I built this thing with some co-founders early on and we start actually talking to a company and very quickly I learned there's a lot to the sales ecosystem you have to have figured out to sell software. You can't just have a cool piece of software and, you know, expect the money is just going to change hands. And so figuring all that stuff out has been a process of, I guess, standing on the shoulders of giants and working with um, angel investors and people like Zane Lackey um, and, uh, and other early investors uh, that have kind of taught us how the businessy side of software businesses work. Yeah. Do you mind speaking to that a little bit more in terms of, you know, the, the business side of a, of a software business and maybe appreciating or, or, or discovering what it takes to actually sell software to a large enterprise? Um, can you walk us through that and maybe share some examples or, or specific learnings? Yeah. So, I mean, like one example would be like, how do you accept payment? Um, and then another example would be like, um, when you go use a product like uh, uh, 
Snapchat or TikTok or Meta or whatever, right? There's a yeah. terms of service at that bottom of the page you don't really pay much attention to, but it outlines the rules and conditions for which you're allowed to interact with the software and how your data is going to be stored and stuff like that. And in the consumer market, nobody reads those things, right? Like somebody put a study out that said, if you were to actually read all the terms of services that you're subject to, it would take seven lifetimes to, you know, something like that to actually read through them all. Yeah, uh, yeah. But on the corporate side, they they get read, they get negotiated, lawyers enter the picture. Um, and that happens every single time a company goes and pays for a piece of software. And that's, or at least, uh, you know, all the times that don't fall into the shadow IT bucket, the, the way you're right. supposed to be, quote unquote, supposed to buy software, um, which, uh, you know, maybe even makes up the minority of, of, <laughs> of the spend of, of a lot of big companies, since I think there's so much friction brought in from, from negotiating MSAs and bringing lawyers in. Um, a lot of individual contributors will just throw stuff on a credit card um, and ignore their, their formal policies. But the way it's supposed to work is you're supposed to bring in a lawyer to review that terms of service and they're supposed to haggle over it. And there's supposed to be red lines that come out and stuff like that. Well, that's a huge barrier to entry if you're trying to start a business and you don't have a lawyer. Um, yeah. Or if you're thinking about quitting your job, but you haven't gone all in yet, and you don't have any resources or funding or anything like that, it can be a deal breaker. Like you're not going to be able to sell this software at all. Um, if you're going through the front door, trying to sell it the way it's supposed to be sold. And you very quickly realize actually you need $10,000 for a lawyer to negotiate red lines on this MSA uh, before, yeah. you know, anybody can even start using it. How do you guys approach that? Do you have in-house counsel go outside counsel? Yeah. So, I mean, at this point, we've raised multiple rounds of fundraising. We took on 13 million from A16Z last year. Um, we have we have lawyers. Um, we have a, a, a good set of, of lawyers to, to draw mm -hmm. from. The other thing I didn't maybe realize ahead of time was like there's specialties in legal, just like there's specialties in security and you're not going to have one lawyer that does everything. And so, um, you know, you've got a different lawyer that helps you out with employment contracts that you do from lawyers that help with MSAs and just, you know, a whole bunch of stuff that you just never otherwise know if you were an engineer. Um, but I think there's another important thing to touch on here, which is that, you know, if, if you have like two different businesses, I guess, or two different entrepreneurs, and you've got one entrepreneur that maybe knows all the businessy stuff, they know all the MSAs and lawyers and crap like that, um, but but they don't know anything about the security ecosystem. They don't know anything about like what a security engineer does day to day or what a CISO's, um, you know, actually allocating their engineers to work on um, versus someone who knows all of those things, um, who, who like is a security practitioner and has worked as a security individual contributor and as a security manager and has a pretty good feeling for what the biggest pain points are um, from the security perspective. I, I would argue it's easier to teach the security person the business stuff than it would be to teach a business person the security stuff. And I, I think I, that's the biggest message I wish I could tell all of my former peers that are still working as individual contributors at tech companies is that like you have no idea how valuable you are. Like it's so much more than what they're paying you. If, if you were to take the jump and go you know, fundraise and take on, you know, and venture partners that you trust um, and, and take the time to learn how those businessy things work. Um, you could be doing what you're doing now 
providing value to a business, but instead of providing it to one business, you could be providing the same value to a thousand businesses. Um, and so I, I, you know, I, w I wish I could encourage more individual contributors to make that jump, to figure out what the businessy side of things are, because what you already know, which is like the security side of things, what the biggest security struggles are, is, is just so valuable from an entrepreneurial perspective. Well, I know we just have a couple of minutes left and you've got uh, another obligation to, to run to. So we can go ahead and, and start wrapping up um, and we can step into the, uh, the quick fire round. Uh, so basic premise is I ask you a couple of quick questions and, and you share whatever comes top of mind. Sound good? All right. Sounds good. Cool. So uh, in all of your ample free time, uh, what book are you currently reading? Oh, I don't think I'm reading any book right now. The last book I read was Venture Deals. It's basically just a book that teaches you about venture capital. Yeah, cool. Okay. Um, what's the uh, most challenging part of your uh, of your role at Truffle Security? Yeah, I mean, like I mentioned before, like there's a lot that I've learned so far and there's still a ton to learn. Um, and so I, I think, you know, part of the reason I like the job so much is it's just a constant challenge of learning new stuff and figuring out what to learn, figuring out the unknown unknowns and all things like that. Um, so yeah, I guess that's an indirect answer, but I think um, always uh, um, always being challenged and that's that's part of like the best about the job. Yeah, cool. And last one, if you could go back in time and uh, get a drink with your, let's say 18 year old self, uh, what advice would you give him? Um, I mean, my 18 year old self spent a lot of time working at CVS pharmacy, um, to, to make side money. Um, and, and I guess like in hindsight, there are certain career paths, particularly in engineering. Um, I wouldn't make this recommendation universally for, for every career path, but because I know the security market and I know the software engineering market, I would have recommended to just take on more student loans and to not worry about the side job, um, to focus more of that time on software engineering and on security and working on cool side projects. Um, just because I know that from the job security perspective and from an income perspective and being in a debt perspective, those things I was trying to de-risk by working a side job didn't turn out to be as, as big of an issue as, as I was worried they might be. But yeah. I wouldn't unilaterally maybe make that same recommendation for everyone and for every career path, just for the particular privilege path that I ended up following, I guess. Yeah. No, if the, uh, especially with that on, on the other end of it, and if, if the ROI of the, that investment is going to, you know, be a career in engineering, then that makes, makes perfect sense. So very good, man. Well, I, I enjoyed getting the chance to, uh, to meet you and chat with you. So thank you so much for, uh, for taking the time and, uh, congratulations on all the successes with Truffle and, and best of luck going forward. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me.